Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of July 30th, 2018. On this week's show, WNBA All-Star Liz Cambage will be here to talk about her record-setting 53-point game, the state of women's basketball in the U.S., and her struggles with depression. Fred Dreyer of Velo News will also join us to talk about Welshman Geraint Thomas's win in the Tour de France, the strange saga of former champion Chris Froome, and Lance Armstrong's latest attempt at redemption. Finally, Keith Barnes, the president of Washington, D.C.'s Mamie Johnson Little League, will join us to talk about the first all-black team to win the district's Little League title. Joining me from our DC studio is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Blockbuster lineup this week, Stefan. How are you? Oh, it's a fun lineup. Yeah. I, I didn't make my, my Little League All-Star team to compete on the road to, to the Little League World Series. I made the All-Star team for like within the league a couple of times, but not like the travel team. Yeah, I didn't make the travel team, yeah, to go yeah. to to go to the to, to go to the, the summer competition. But look where that chip on uh I do on remember your shoulder what has happened. taken you. I usually I was a second baseman. They put me at third in the tryouts, bad hop, hit me in the face. That yeah. Was it. I was done. I was also two foot seven. So that was probably <laughs> a disadvantage. Must have been a uh, worm burner to hit you in the face, yeah. not bounce over your head. At the end of Saturday's WNBA All-Star Game in Minneapolis, all the players made way so Liz Cambage of the Dallas Wings could have a clear path to throw it down, which she did. After the game, in response to a suggestion from three-point champion Allie Quigley that the league add a dunk contest next year, the six-foot-eight Cambage said, Girl, I'm getting old now. I'm not in my early 20s. <laughs> Cambage, who is 27, appears to be in her prime, setting a league record a short while ago with 53 points in a game and 88 points in a two-game stretch. She's also been outspoken in her criticism of how WNBA players get treated by the league. She's talked about struggling with depression, and she's called out racism in her native Australia. Liz Cambage, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, guys, but I have to correct you. I got, I got two more weeks until I'm 27, so... I'm oh. for right now. <laughs> All right. A young woman of 26. I apologize. Yeah, I'm not 27 yet. I haven't, I'm not there yet. So give me two more weeks. <laughs> All right. Um, in that 53-point game, Liz, you shot 17 of 22 from the floor, 15 of 16 from the free throw line. You made four threes after making just five all season before that. That sounds very fun to me, but... Um, I know you're a very introspective person, so I wanted to ask the mm-hmm. question, was that the most fun you've had on a basketball court? Are there other games and moments that meant more than that or were or were more exhilarating? Or was that, that game just really special for you? Yeah, it's a pretty big game. Um, you know, it was it got a bit silly towards the end when I had 40 points plus. Um, I didn't realize I had finished with like 53 until the end of the game. And you know, I came off the court and everyone's like, you broke the record, you broke the record. I was like, oh my God, I've actually just broken Bebe's record. Um, you know, Raquanda, she had 50 here in uh, 51, I think it was, with the Tulsa Shock a few years ago. So, yeah, you know, pretty a pretty dope feeling, but uh, there's so much talent in this league. I feel like it, it could be broken tonight. It could be broken tomorrow night. You know, any given day, someone else could break that record. So it's nice to have it for the moment. Liz, you were the number two pick in the WNBA draft in 2011, but you've had what looks from the outside like a love-hate relationship with the league. You left after that season, you came back in 2013, and then you didn't play again until this year in the WNBA. Mm -hmm. After your 53-point game, you took advantage of the media platform to call out the league for the way it treats and markets players, contrasting Mm -hmm. playing in the WNBA with playing overseas 
where top mm-hmm. players can get six and seven figure salaries. You're not mm-hmm. alone in those criticisms, obviously. Your teammate Skylar Diggins has been pretty outspoken. Uh, what do you think the WNBA needs to do better? Mm, you know, it's definitely improved and getting better since, you know, I was first here in 2011. And, um, I really, like, I didn't want to be here. I didn't want to be a part of this league. Why, why would I want to be a part of a league where, you know, I wasn't enjoying myself? I was in Tulsa battling a lot of depression, having a, a really bad time and, you know, waking up not wanting to be here, not wanting to be a part of the team and, you know, not even wanting to play basketball. So I was like, why am I being ridiculed for choosing to play overseas when, you know, this league isn't treating me right, isn't looking after me and, you know, not paying me. And, you know, it did take a lot for me to to come back this year. And I have a lot of friends and family back home who are super proud and super happy to see me smiling and playing basketball because that's something that was really missing since 2011. So I saw an interview in which you said, I think we need to normalize not being okay because everyone goes through their tough times. And it seemed like it mm-hmm. took you, it seemed like it took you a while to feel comfortable talking about it. Was that because mm-hmm. of the stigma around mental health or because you're just a very private person or both? Um, you know, <clears throat> I'm pretty open about a lot of things, but it did, you know, take, it took me three years to tell my mom that, you know, I have depression and, you know, I'm, I'm medicated and I'm working on it. I'm trying to get better. And, you know, it, it, it took me to getting to one of the darkest places of my life and telling my mom, like, I'm not okay. You know, waking up not wanting to live is not, <laughs> is not a normal way to feel, especially when you're 25 years old. So I went through some of the darkest of days, especially after, you know, Leading up to Rio Olympics and afterwards, I, I really lost my light and lost my purpose. And it, it took a while and it took, you know, saying I'm not okay to, for me to get better. And part of that, I imagine, Liz, is the difficulty of being a, a, a foreign athlete. You played in China. You played elsewhere. Um, you're living a sort of peripatetic lifestyle um, mm-hmm. you, you're, you, you're not coming to the WNBA for all those years could be interpreted as, well, she doesn't like the pay here and why should she come back? And a lot of mm-hmm. obviously WNBA players go overseas to make their money in the off season. Mm-hmm. Um, but I imagine it was more complicated than that for you. It sounds like. Yeah. You know, I'm an only child and you know, my family, my mom, my grandmother are my everything and my friends back home, are my family as well. And, you know, when you go live in, you know, Europe, or when I played a lot in China, where I'm the only English-speaking person on the team, you know, you feel very isolated, and, you know, it's hard, especially with social media these days, looking at my phone and seeing all my friends, you know, living their best life in Australian summer when I'm all alone, you know, in China, in, a, in the snow, so, yeah, it, it's hard, but um, it's part of the job, and I'm lucky here in Dallas. I've I've got Coach Aaron Phillips, who I used to play with. And, you know, she's like, you know, big sister to me. And and I've got Kayla Francis now as well, who has definitely been a light of mine since I was 16 years old. Um, I've known Kayla Francis. So it's really great being here in Dallas where I've got teammates and coaches and staff around me who feel like family. I wonder if, um, you know, you hear a lot of the American women talk about the responsibility they feel to help grow the league. Candace Parker said that. Mm. um, And, you know, just that it's important for the WNBA to exist in 10 or 20 years Mm -hmm. to to exist for their kids and other people's kids. And I'm wondering if it feels a little different for you not being American or if you feel the same Mm -hmm. thing just because the WNBA is, you know, a, a very important and, and prominent institution in women's basketball. Oh, it's so important. You know, I grew up watching Michelle Timms and Lauren Jackson and Penny Taylor kill it over here. And, you know, I was, when I got drafted, that was one of the biggest moments of my life. I, I, I couldn't believe that I was finally going to play in the WBA. And, um, you know, having, being able to, you know, watch girls play here growing up and in the Olympics, if if I didn't have that, I, I probably wouldn't keep playing sport and make it my goal to be, you know, one of the best and be able to represent my country in the green and gold. So I think it's super important. I, I want to be able to sit my daughter down and 
You know, be like, you can do what mommy did. Like, my kids want to play basketball. I would love that. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, if I have a son and a daughter, how am I meant to tell my baby girls, your brother's probably going to make hundreds times more than you do? And it's not about, you know, making uh, the same amount as NBA players. It's about making enough so we don't have to play basketball all year round. So we can stay in America and, you know, focus on marketing our game here and be able to have an off-season where we can, you know, put more time into the community and, you know, speaking out and, you know, encouraging more girls and, and boys as well to play sport. I've got to give you credit for having a sense of humor about a lot of this, though, Liz, and, and for being very good at Twitter. You tweeted recently, today I learned NBA refs make more than a WNBA player, and the 12th man on a w- on an NBA team makes more than a whole WNBA team. Not sure if I want a sex change or a career change right now. It's quite frustrating going to bed most nights knowing that if I was born with a penis, I would be entitled to so much more in life. <laughs> Is that not true, though? <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I'm not saying it's not true. It 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 draws a really clear contrast to the way that American media and fans value men's sports versus women's sports. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's hard, you know. I we constantly hear, "Oh, they want the same amount of money as the men. They want the same amount of." No, we don't. We don't. We just want to make enough money so we don't have to spend whole year round chasing basketball courts and stadiums and, you know, living overseas all alone. It, I would love it if I could make America my home all year round, but, you know, I have to go off to China for five months in the, in the middle of their winter, you know, girls go off to Europe for eight months. And if we could put all our time into the WNBA, the quality of the game would improve so much as well here. Um, but, you know, we have, you have, you do have so many women sitting out of this league just because it doesn't pay well. And, they save themselves for Europe because that's where we make our money. But, um, you know, a lot of times I do sit and I think if I were a boy, I see the boys I grew up with, you know, finally signing over here, you know, for $5 million deals. And, you know, it it takes me five, six years to make $5 million um, if I was playing back-to-back-to-back China or Europe. So, yeah, it's really hard just to, to think if what if I was a boy, where would I be? If I had the talent I have right now when I was breaking records in the NBA, I'd be making hundreds of millions. It's true. It's true. And you also, you had an Achilles uh, injury. And then I imagine Mm -hmm. that you um, have to make a decision then because you ended up taking a lot of time off where like Mm -hmm. you, for the long term in your career, you like, that's Mm -hmm. a really terrible injury. You need to rest that. But if you want Mm -hmm. to like make a living, then you need to rush back and play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know I'm lucky. I have the opportunity where I can take my time with rehab. You know, I see a lot of players getting rushed and you know have a lot of pressure on them to come back. But I had you know my mom and my agent and, and my physios you know think about my longevity and not just about right now. And I was coming back from that, and you know an Achilles injury isn't an easy thing. Um, you know, what was it? Four years ago, I did that. You know, next month it will be four years ago. So I'm happy I took a whole year to come back and just take my time. Um, so it's really lame that you get a technical foul for celebrating in the mm-hmm. WNBA. We got to do something mm-hmm. about that. Yeah. Like, what's the deal yeah. with that, man? <laughs> you know, I see men wilding out. You know, I, I hate comparing <laughs> our game to the men's game, but you send you see men wilding out on each other and flexing after dunking and scoring and. There was one game here in Dallas where um, it was Dallas from New York. She made a big play and, you know, flexed and got called a technical. And being on the opposition team, I was shocked. I, you know, there was a lot of, there was like five technicals or something that game. But Your team should have refused to shoot the technical free throw just out of solidarity. Yeah. Is that the same game where you said you got a tech for looking at a ref? That was, um, that was the week before. But um, I think, you know... We play with passion. Women are emotional. Women are fierce. And we have the right to, you know, to pump ourselves up. I agree. That seems uncontroversial. It does seem uncontroversial. (laughs) It seems like a petty use of officiating ability. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about your, uh, your, your, your Twitter conversations with another Australian, Andrew Bogut. Mm hmm. Um, 
you know, Andrew Bogut does not fall on the right side of many issues. I think we can all agree nope. on that. <laughs> um, and you're willing to engage his, uh, his, his, I don't know, is it even passive sort of Neanderthal beliefs? Um, wh- wh- why are you willing to, to sort of do that? I mean, it must be a big deal in Australia. You have these two Australian basketball superstars going after each other on social media. Yeah, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're teammates for Team Australia. We represent our country. And, you know, if I see someone saying something that I don't agree with, I don't, I don't care who it is. I'm going to say something. And when you're especially talking about some, my issue was about, um, you know, some political views in Australia and police brutality against young um, Aboriginal children um, in Australia. And we have, a, we have a lot of race issues in Australia. A lot of people want to ignore it and deny it, but we have big racial issues in Australia. And, you know, um, we've, I've been through it. I've, I grew up being, you know, the only black girl in, in private schools and being picked on for my skin color, but being picked on for literally everything since I was a child. And that gave me tough skin. And going through that, it makes you want to stand up. And, you know, <laughs> it makes you want to... Aaron's yelling at me to stop being political. <laughs> it's scared. People get scared about talking out. It's something I, I, I'm not scared to take a stance and talk out um, and stand up for other people's rights. I don't think you should stick to sports. I'm, I'm curious what the conversation is around social justice and athletes mm-hmm. in Australia versus in mm-hmm. the U.S., I think another reason, I'm very outspoken and, you know, I really don't care what people think. Um, (laughs) And, you know, sometimes I'm not always right, but at the end of the day, I'm not trying to keep anyone happy except myself and my family and my friends. And if I ever say something wrong or if I am wrong, I have people around me that will call me out on my actions. And I think that's important to have, you know, people that will tell you no, not just be surrounded by yes men all the time. But, um, you know, I guess in Australia, people are scared. The media can turn on you. The media turn on me many a time. And there is a lot of white supremacy in Australia. Um, filters from the media, you know, right now, right now we have a lot of propaganda news outlets speaking about Sudanese gangs in Melbourne, which is completely false. It's all lies. It's all made up. And, you know, it's, it's, it's tiring to see people believe everything they read. I want to ask uh, a final question about dunking. You were the first woman to dunk in the Olympics. Um, mm-hmm. And then there was the, the dunk in the All-Star game. I always have kind of mixed feelings about it because it feels mm-hmm. to me like whenever a woman gets celebrated for dunking or gets noticed for it, it's again this comparison with the men's game. It's like, oh, she can do what men do. So that must mean that she's mm-hmm. good. Do you have mixed feelings about about that, about being kind of noticed for your ability to dunk a basketball rather than all the other great things you can do on the court? Or is it just a compliment to all the other great things you can do on the court and you want to show people that, hey, I can get up there and, and, and dunk as well? I guess growing up, it was, I kind of was, I never practiced it. I was always scared. I don't know why. I, I never practiced and it's something I wish I did practice and if, you know, if girls see me doing it, I hope they start practicing and start working on it earlier with a tennis ball and then, you know, like a, then a, a medium-sized, like, softball and then get a real basketball because, you know, if if I grew up in my teenage years practicing dunking, I could probably do 360 windmills now. So, you know, the earlier you start something, the quicker you're going to, you know, perfect it and make it your go-to. So I want to see more girls practicing. I want to see more girls getting up there. Liz Cambage plays for the Dallas Wings of the WNBA. You can also see her playing all around the world and for Australia and international competitions. Liz, it was such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for doing it. Thank you, and thanks for supporting, guys. Before we get to our conversation about the Tour de France, wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Stefan and I will revisit our conversation about Jaylene Hinkle, and the U.S. women's soccer team. There was supplement our conversation. Supplement. Revisit isn't right. Supplement. Like we're going to do more. We're okay. not just revisiting what we said. We're supplementing. Right. right, right, right. Supplement. There was stuff we didn't say last week that we wanted to address. Like if there's any logic to comparing her to Colin Kaepernick. 
If you want to hear that, you should join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. On Sunday in Paris, Geraint Thomas of Wales cruised down the Champs-Élysées to bask in his first ever Tour de France victory. Thomas's teammate on Team Sky, four-time winner Chris Froome, came in third after being allowed into the world's most famous cycling race just days before the wheels started spinning round and round. As his participation had been in doubt due to charges, he had taken an excessive amount of asthma medication. We've all been there. Um, But given the sports history, I am 100% sure that everything here is on the level Joining us now uh, from Switzerland is Fred Dreyer, the editor-in-chief of the magazine Velo News. Hey there, Fred. Hey, Josh. How's it going? It's going very well. I mean, I'm sure that this podium is going to remain intact if we look five years down the line. But before we get into all of the doping questions, um, which I promise we'll get to in the second question, um, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about um, Geraint Thomas, who had won two Olympic gold medals before this year's tour, but who I didn't know anything about. What kind of guy is he? What kind of writer is he? So Garrett Thomas is a, um, he's a product of the GB cycling program. Uh, about 15 years ago, Great Britain invested, started investing heavily in cycling to build up for the Olympics. And at the time, he was a very talented junior rider. And he was pretty good as a 10-year-old, as a 14-year-old. He was really good as a 17-year-old, How was he as an 8-year-old? <laughs> I don't think he was cycling at that point. I, you know, my research and my reporting didn't go back that far. So he's a late bloomer is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, real late bloomer for cycling. No, he's a guy who showed a lot of promise and a lot of talent as a kid and sort of made his way through this Olympic program, won two Olympic championships. But really, his uh, big results were on the track And with Team Sky, he was more of a worker bee. And so he was one of the sort of offensive linemen of Chris Froome for Chris Froome's four uh, Tour de France victories. And, you know, he was one of, we see this with a lot of the guys who are in the worker bee status. Every now and again, they'll get an opportunity to be a team leader. And with Team Sky, these guys usually blow it. They crash or they have a bad day or they have bad legs. And uh, Garant was given this opportunity in 2017 at the tour of Italy and he crashed and people were like, Oh, that's it. It's the, the curse of the sky worker bee. He's never going to get there. But this year he started to show promise. In fact, he won this week long stage race called the criterium du Dauphiné, which is all, you know, it's often looked at as sort of the big warm up race for the tour de France. He who wins the Dauphiné is often good going into the tour. A lot of people thought he had the ability to someday win uh, the Tour de France or to challenge for a Grand Tour, but he was in the shadow of Chris Froome, so there was always a question of whether he'd ever get the opportunity to. And the way that that happened, and I guess this means we're going to push the drugs question to at least third. We're going to push it back. And the way that happened is really interesting to me. Um, You know, Chris Froome in this race was the leader at the outset, right? Or he was was still the, Mm -hmm. the, 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 he was the leader of the team. Um, tell us what happened that led to, to Sky basically saying, all right, we're going to let Thomas be the, the guy in front. Cause very often what happens is if the team leader has a bad stage, accommodations are made so that he can get back into the front and reclaim the yellow Jersey. That didn't happen here. There was a point in this race where team Sky gave it to Thomas. 
Yeah, well, there were three things, the first of which we'll get to a little later, which was Chris Froome had this cloud of salbutamol hanging over him, uh, whether he was actually going to be able to participate in the Tour de France. So I think Sky hedged its bets a little bit with Garrett Thomas and said, hey, Garrett, maybe you prepare yourself for the Tour like you're preparing to win it. Then the second thing that happened was Thomas won the Dauphiné. So holy cow, this guy's fit. He can win this warm-up race. He's looking really good for the Tour. And then the third thing that happened was the first stage of the Tour de France, Chris Froome is racing through the flat stages and he crashed. Uh, he was on his bike pretty quickly to catch back on, but he lost about uh, 50 seconds that day uh, along with some other general classification team leaders, whereas Garrett Thomas just stayed with a bunch. And uh, Thomas actually stayed out of trouble for the whole first week, which saw a lot of these guys lose time with crashes and getting caught behind obstacles, etc. So he was actually the best place in uh, in the overall heading into the mountains. So let's talk about Froome's uh, drug cloud. It was a salbutamol cloud. I like that. Yeah. Cumulus, cirrus, salbutamol. I'm sort of envisioning him like riding sort of like pig pen and peanuts with a little cloud <laughs> surrounding him of, of this drug. Before we get to whether he should have been allowed in the race, I've just read about how fans were like really like going after him and talking about spitting. I'm always like a little bit skeptical when there are reports in the press about people spitting on other people. Did you see any flying expectoration and just what was the general tenor? Were, were people like jeering him and wanting him to lose? Yeah, I, at the sign-in on the first day, apparently there were lots of boos. And then it wasn't until they got to the mountains that things like spit and water and actually fans running alongside him and actually pushing him started to happen. So, you know, Froome's a polarizing guy. He's won the race four times. He has kind of an awkward style on the bicycle that some traditionalists find to be a little uh, a little hard on the eyes. And then he races with this very controlled style where, you know, a lot of the flashy attacking riders of your uh, you know, people like that style of riding and Froome doesn't seem to race that way. So he already was a really polarizing figure, but coming into this race with the, the cloud of salbutamol and also with like French cycling great Bernard Hinault saying that Froome needed to be kicked out of the race and that the riders should go on strike if he's allowed to race. Uh, it just really whipped up the anti-Froome sentiment. That's sort of like uh, when Barry Bonds was greeted with Oops, cutouts of, uh, of, uh, of, of needles. Yeah. Um, it wasn't just fans that seemed confused and opposed to the decision to allow Froome into the race after having been not allowed to compete for a while, correct? Um, Travis Tygart, the chief executive of the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, basically, you know, without directly slamming the Chris Froome decision said, given WADA's conflicted leadership and lack of oversight, it's pretty simple why people are skeptical when a star athlete walks. There was no public explanation. There was no explanation given. Um, and it's possible that this was the right decision, Tigert went on to note, but his skepticism certainly feeds valid skepticism among fans, doesn't it? It does. And, you know, the whole salbutamol mess is very convoluted and there's a lot, of, a lot of ins, a lot of outs. Basically what happened was at the Tour of Spain last year, Chris Froome recorded an adverse analytical. So not necessarily a positive test. It's like, it's like double secret probation, basically, before you get to have a positive test. Um, he, his urine sample, had he had excreted too much salbutamol. Now, salbutamol is a drug that's legal to take but you can only excrete a certain amount of it. So people thought, hey, you know, Chris Froome maybe was taking all this salbutamol as a performance enhancer, not just because he's trying to cure his asthma. So what happened was on the eve of the tour, this case had not been resolved yet. And people were thinking, well, you know, Chris Froome has this anti-doping case hanging over his head. Is he going to be allowed to race? Is he not? And the Sunday before the start, the Tour de France owners, ASO, came out and just said, oh, Chris Froome, he cannot participate in our race. And the very next day, the UCI, Cycling's Governing Body, said, you know what? This case against Chris Froome, we have dropped it. And the explanations that were given were not really, just people didn't, they didn't fulfill what people wanted to see. They wanted to see Chris Froome proving beyond a doubt that this adverse analytical was, you know, the case of 
him using a medical dose of salbutamol and not a potential performance-enhancing dose. So we're now in year one million of doping and, and cycling, it feels like, and it's made me a little bit less interested in covering the race and watching it, not because I really care what the athletes are doing in particular, um, but just because it's kind of the same conversation over and over again. And so I'm curious how you feel about it as the editor of a cycling-specific publication and what your readers think. Are they just totally exhausted and only want to hear about the race? Or are people like, oh, I really want to hear the nitty-gritty about Chris Froome? Because it is, like, interesting, like, the investigation and, like, the forensics behind it. Um, But I'm just wondering if people are just like, I don't want to hear this shit anymore. Um, I think there is a bit of fatigue. And I think especially with American viewers, they look at Team Sky and they see the dominance and it just reminds them of Lance Armstrong and U.S. Postal. And they say the only way to dominate this sport was the way that Lance Armstrong and Postal did, which was through mafia tactics and having, you know, the bus pull over on the side of the road and people literally put bags of blood into their arm and take supercharged drugs that make them so much faster than you might otherwise ride normally. But here's the thing. In 2018, the sport's biggest anti-doping story is about asthma medication. It's about whether or not Chris Froome basically took too many puffs off of his inhaler while he was fighting a cold during the Vuelta España. It's not, you know, was Chris Froome hooked up to bags of blood and was Team Sky intimidating former riders and, you know, operating sort of a quasi-mafia organization like we saw with Lance back in the day. And, you know, you talk to riders who are in the sport, you talk to former members of Team Sky, and you do get a picture that things, things actually are, you know, on the level. Yes, you still hear a lot of murmurs and a, and a lot of accusations, but there's a general opinion that the level of doping, sort of the game-changing doping that was going on 10 to 15 years ago isn't going on anymore. Well, it's also possible we just don't know because the science is always ahead of the testing what athletes might be doing to try to game the system um, through performance-enhancing drugs right now. Speaking of which... It's true. I want to push push back on you just to say, though, that when you look at the style of racing at the Tour de France... 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there was so much aggression and so much attacking and so much action. I, as a fan of the sport, I love to watch it. You'd see these guys just going as hard as they could up the side of mountains and going on these surges and these breakaways. And the style of racing that you see now is attrition. You see the front group riding along at a really hard pace and just sort of one by one, guys fall off the pack. You mentioned Lance Armstrong, and every cycling conversation needs to come back to Lance Armstrong, of course. Um, he was blogging for Outside Magazine. He uh, gave an interview to Freakonomics in which he once again tried to sort of recast the narrative around him. It was portrayed as a, a genuine mea culpa, and Lance is now sort of, I think, trying to sort of reimagine himself as a, a voice of reason and, and, and justice in cycling, that we need to go forward and we need to improve the sport and you have to have your own anti-doping regulations, he told Freakonomics. Um, is Lance Armstrong's effort to rehabilitate his image one more time successful in any way? And is there a reason that we should be reading and listening to Lance Armstrong at this point? Uh, those are two very separate questions. You know, when Lance Armstrong started up his own sort of media empire with his podcast and this blog, I was a little bit skeptical. But, you know, the proof is in the size of his audience. And from what we've heard, he has this enormous audience and people really like his podcast. And so, you know, he has been successful in in sort of remaking himself as this one man cycling media brand. And kudos to him as for whether or not his uh, opinions and perspective on the sport um, are really what the sport needs to do. I'm somewhat skeptical of that. I've heard him say uh, many times that you know he thinks that the sport spends way too much time worrying about and thinking about things like anti-doping. And you know, for someone who was brought down by the anti-doping system, I guess it would really make sense for them to have that perspective. So Armstrong, when he was the face of the tour and before his downfall, was ama- amazing for the sport, bringing in people who 
we're not cycling fans and giving cycling this um, image of of being uh, you know associated with over overcoming great obstacles and and hardships and had this kind of charismatic leader is Thomas somebody who could change the sports image in any way or you know he's in his 30s is it kind of too late for him because obviously Chris Froome is not someone as you said even before the the doping stuff he wasn't somebody who was like particularly charismatic or exciting to folks outside the sport or even inside the sport yeah, the problem with Chris Froome was that he was a little—he is a bit on the type A, you know, training-focused, living this monastic lifestyle uh, cyclist. Um, he's very polite, you know. He he'll answer your questions in a very polite manner and sort of represents this like kind, prim and proper cyclist. Garrett Thomas, though, there are a lot of stories of him uh, as kind of a legendary partier. That when the time uh, is right and the mood strikes him. He will go out to the wee hours of the night and drink a lot of beer and, you know, maybe even have to be dragged home by some of his buddies. He loves uh, rugby. And in a lot of his interviews, he'll talk about how he doesn't read cycling websites. And then he apologizes to all the cycling reporters and says, you know, he'd much rather read about rugby. But you get the you get the feeling that he's a guy who likes to have fun. And I wrote a story about him and interviewed some of his coaches and friends. And they all kind of had these stories of, oh, yeah, you know, that that one time when Garrett stayed out way too late and was a little hungover at the race or we had to you know, punish him because he was having a little bit too much fun. So on that end, he could bring a bit of a different attitude to, to a sport, you know, that's so uh, associated with sort of this type A monastic lifestyle. But, you know, in, in terms of whether he's going to have the same power of Lance Armstrong, I don't think so. I mean, Lance Armstrong was the story, the personality, the team, the fact that he was American, the attitude, all these things sort of rolled into one. Um, there was so much about Lance to bring people into the sport. I didn't know this till I read the story that there were 13 amateur women cyclists who rode every stage of the Tour de France the day before the men, and they had to do it alongside trucks and traffic. Um, and it reminded me that there's no women's Tour de France. Apparently, there was a parallel event in the 80s for a few years, and this group wants to see a full 21-day women's tour added. Not all the women's professional cyclists seem to be supportive of that. But my question is, why isn't there a, a, a women's tour? I guess there's a one-day stage or a one-day race, but there's no full-blown tour. Why not? Well, there's a long history of um, large women's races being put on. And then after a few years, they are not financially soluble. You know, they lose money and it, it, they, they, they're kept going by a sponsor or a brand or a municipality or a local government that's able to fund it. Uh, right now, there's a women's tour of Italy that's very successful, that uh, it's a 10-day race and the best women come out and ballot out on the uh, roads of Italy. And it's, you know, produces some great drama and great racing. But starting, uh, you know, Six, seven years ago, there was a real movement to um, get ASO, the owners of the Tour de France, to start a women's Tour de France. And, um, you know, there was, a, there was a film made about it and there was a lot of pr uh, pressure put on them through social media. And what they did was they produced a one-day race. And it was a one-day race of circuits racing around the Arc de Triomphe and the Champs-Élysées with the final day. And after a few years of doing that, they took it into the mountains. So it's this one-day uh, race with a lot of climbing. And, you know, you talk to the women who race it and they do like the course and they say that it is a good thing for the sport, but it just doesn't live up to what a lot of them would like to see, which is, you know, if not a three week women's tour de France, then at least a week long or a 10 day tour de France. And, you know, I, I see where they're coming from. ASO is one of the only businesses in all of cycling that generates enough revenue off their race to potentially um, fund something like this. You know, a lot of the other races out there, they, you know, they could put on a women's race, but it would be, it, it might be hard going from a financial perspective for a few years until they were able to get the sponsorship going. But that really isn't the case with ASO. So, um, you know, you've seen, you've seen pressure over the years to try and get a women's tour of France going. Fred Dreyer is the editor in chief of the magazine Velo News. He covered the Tour de France in France. Fred, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks a lot, guys. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here in Washington last week, the Little League Baseball Championship was won by a team composed entirely of African-American players. In a city that's 50% black, you might have expected that to have happened before, but the win by the kids representing the Mamie Peanut Johnson Little League were the first to pull it off. They'll compete in the regional tournament in Bristol, Connecticut, starting later this week. The winner of that goes to Williamsport, Pennsylvania, to play in the Little League World Series. Keith Barnes founded the Mamie Johnson Little League just four years ago. He's with us now. Congratulations, Keith. Oh, thank you. I can't overstate how impressive an accomplishment this is. Uh, Youth sports in D.C. are bifurcated geographically, economically, and racially, and that is especially obvious in competitive baseball. You've overcome a lot in a short time to get these kids in a place to succeed. How did this happen? Well, the kids, they just work hard. The community actually brought into baseball in Ward 7, and it's not just me. We've had plenty of help. Um, I, I definitely have to thank the National Youth Baseball Academy. They've been very great with, you know, with us using the facilities. Um, and as you may know, eight of the 12 kids actually attend their program. Um, we also want to thank, like, the home team. They sponsor the uniforms for every little league in D.C., and that helps us keep the cost down so that, you know, we can have kids play. Yeah, the Washington Nationals, you mentioned, I mean, that's been yeah. a, a huge contributor to making sure you, your kids can play on good fields for starters, yeah. right? And get yeah. some get additional coaching, and there's an after-school program that combines academics with baseball, right? Correct. Mm-hmm. Um, I asked a friend of mine what it costs for his 11-year-old son to play baseball. And I should say here that you mentioned Ward 7. That's in Anacostia, which is the other side of the Anacostia River in D.C., which is one of the the racial and economic dividing lines in the city. Um, kids over there, the kids on Mamie Johnson, are not having the don't have the advantages that my friend's kids and other kids that I know do. He told me that travel baseball costs $875 a year, Camp costs $375 a week. Private hitting lessons are about $750 a year. So that's a minimum of $2,000 a year on the low end to play competitive baseball. And he noted also that travel soccer, which his son also plays, is $3,000 a year. So you begin to get a sense of what you're up against. Um, these kids are not from that, those sorts of means, are they? No, um, not at all. Actually, we only charge $20 per season for our Little League program. Um, and even then, some families, really, we really have to uh, basically scholarship because they may not have it at that time. Um, you know, we don't have the means for travel baseball, but the academy did start a program called um, YBA Hustle, which is travel light. So we play in Northern Virginia Travel League, um, and they kind of like fund that whole program. So it's not full-time travel, but the kids do get a sense of travel baseball. So in the front page Washington Post story about your team's accomplishment, Amon mentioned that in 2017, African-Americans made up just 7.1% of opening day roster spots in Major League Baseball, which is the lowest percentage in 60 years. I've read interviews with major league players, black players, who've said that they were actually made fun of by their peers for playing baseball when they were growing up. Was it like a hard sell on some of these kids to be like, you should play baseball. It's a fun sport. We can do something great with this team. Oh, definitely. It was a very hard sell. I mean, (sighs) certain parts of D.C. are heavy football and basketball. Um, So to get the kids to transition to baseball, 
it's been a struggle. It's been easier the past couple of years. I'm guessing because of the whole CTE studies. Um, I'm seeing a few kids transition from football to baseball. Um, I guess because of the parents' concern of the injuries. Um, but just the popularity of it is not a very popular sport um, within the black community. So we're, we're really trying to change that narrative, trying to change the culture. And I think we're, we're getting there. And I think you're going to benefit from what you just said, Keith. Uh, I'm, uh, I've talked to a couple of middle school principals in uh, Northwest DC, predominantly white Northwest DC, which, which draw kids from all over the city. And uh-huh. one of the reasons they still have a middle school football team is, as one principal told me, is because black kids need something to do after school. They don't want to play right. soccer. They don't want to play baseball. Right. Um, right. How do you begin? I mean, is this a way to begin to change the culture? And what other hurdles do you have to overcome to get baseball to a, a, a position of, of greater prominence among black kids in D.C.? I think it is. I think um, there's a lot of you know, fractions out there that's, you know, trying to help this movement. Um, you have um, RBI, you have um, um, Cal Ripken, like ev- everybody's trying to trying to grow the game. But I think um, marketing some of the African-American superstars um, that's playing Major League Baseball, I think that'll help. And also I think just a focus, to have kids play multiple sports and not just focus on one thing, I think that'll help out a lot as well. Because if you if you look at the stats for um, pe- for uh, people who get drafted, like eighty eight percent of them play multiple sports either in high school or college. We've talked a lot about the big picture here. I want to talk about the kids on this team, what would you say are your strengths and weaknesses on the field? We want a scouting report before you guys go to Bristol. <laughs> we want to get down to that, to the actual games here. No, friend. seriously. And, and Keith, we got to say here too, you know, a, a DC team has never, I don't think advanced to Williamsport. We got to no, put some pressure on these kids, Keith. Come on. <laughs> They got to do it. They have that. Um, I think one of our strengths is really our speed. Um, if the kids can put the ball and play, you know, with the short and field of the Little League games, I think the base, the bases are um, 60 feet. Um, you, you know, we can beat out a lot of ground, ground balls and balls we tend to hit in the gap. We can, you know, we can go for doubles and, you know, sometimes triples. Um I think one of our weakest points may be pitching. Like, if you look at old clips of of the World Series teams, like, they have guys that can bring it in the, you know, low to mid-70s, and, and they'll have more than just one. So I think our kids, um, they're good with their control, but we don't have that really big, velocity other teams may have you don't have but, one of the, you don't have one of those like six foot tall 12 year olds no we do not our tallest kids are maybe five six um like we're a really short team we're we're not a big team but we're a fast team like one of our smallest kids he's four nine and 72 pounds like he's a little thing <laughs> so so you know and we have a couple of kids like that but if they put the ball in play, they can fly. They can run. So, you know, that's that's the whole point. And, you know, being able to adjust to that kind of speed once we get up there. But I would say this, though. Like, one thing, um, one thing about baseball in D.C., like, it has really gotten better. Like, um, with the growth of the new um, leagues, uh, Banneker City, Captain Hill, us, like, for the past 30 years, it's just been Northwest and Cap City. So now all of the tournament games are competitive, which really prepares whoever wins D.C. up in Bristol. Um, I mean, we were one and three in pool play, like we did, but we just got hot the last two games. We barely squeaked into the final four of this tournament. So it seems like this is really good 
for the Nationals and for you guys. It seems like this is a no-brainer for Major League Baseball to have, you know, all of its teams, you know, have academies and sponsor teams like you guys. Um, Do you feel like baseball has been a little bit slow on the uptake with that? I mean, there's been kind of talk about why aren't there more black players? Why aren't there more black kids playing for decades now? Um, I, I don't. I don't think so. I, I think it's more at the grassroots level. Um, I don't think it's necessarily Major League Baseball because even during All Star Weekend, well, All Star Week, they had the Congressional Cup and they had maybe eight or ten RBI teams come and play in that tournament. It was teams from uh, Compton, uh, Philly, New Orleans, New York. Puerto Rico, Texas, and, you know, they were kids of color. So um, I don't think that's necessarily it. I think Major League Baseball is is doing their part. I think it has to be driven more at the grassroots and local level. Keith, I want to ask you a question about Little League Baseball generally. Uh, one hurdle that faces African-American teams and African-American neighborhoods in Little League in predominantly white institutions like Little League is suspicion. I'm thinking of the 2015 Chicago team that was stripped of the title because of boundary issues. Uh-huh. Are you conscious of that, that you might face some higher level of scrutiny, whether yeah. it's justified or not? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 to me, um, being something different, I think that comes with the ter- territory. Um, and especially with us getting all of this coverage, um, and, I, and I'm trying to tamp it down. Um, just because of that. Um, but I, w- I would say this, Little League Baseball, well, since that's happened, Little League Baseball has done a great job of um, checking paperwork even before we get there. So um, they check, they double check, and they triple check. So, you know, I'm, I'm not worried, but you're, you're going to always have those kind of stories out there. Keith, we shouldn't let you go before asking about the name of the league. You uh, chose to name it after Mamie Peanut Johnson. She was a pitcher in the Negro Leagues, one of three women that played in the Negro Leagues. She got to watch these boys play last year in the uh, championship game that they lost, and she died uh, recently. Um, tell us about your decision to, to name the league after her. Yes, yes. So... I actually met her in 2015 um, after seeing her talking to Monet Davis, you know, at the Little, at the Little League World Series. So um, someone introduced me to her. We went over to her house, um, and we basically asked her permission to name the league after her so that we could keep her legacy going. And she said yes instantly. So... You know, last year was pretty special because, you know, the kids actually made it to the championship game last year, and she was there to see the kids play. So, you know, it was good for her to really see, you know, where the program is uh, basically heading. So, you know, and she she passed away um, this past um, year, and we're, we're, we're trying to do it for her and make her proud. Keith Barnes is the founder of the Mamie Peanut Johnson Little League in Washington, D.C. His team is off to Bristol, Connecticut, with hopes of making it to the Little League World Series in Williamsport in August. Keith, thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you, guys. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Now it is time for After Balls and Mamie Pina Johnson got at minimum, her third hang up and listen mention on this week's show. In 2016, we did Peanut Johnson's for Afterballs. Mike's Peanut Johnson was the 1999 film The Hurricane incorrectly portrayed a fight between Reuben Hurricane Carter and Joey uh, Giardello. Hmm. FYI. 
Um, mine, mine was about Tim Tebow being offered a million dollars to play two games by a Russian football team. I forgot about that. And your Peanut Johnson was about ghost runners or imaginary runners, which to call them. Or invisible men. Or invisible men. And then last year, we talked about Peanut Johnson in a bonus segment about sports figures who died in 2017. Wait, wait. And I also mentioned Peanut Johnson last year in an afterball about Little League. I mentioned the, the, the Mamie Johnson Little League kids making it to the finals in D.C., Monet Davis, the Chicago kids, where they were. So we've got our Peanut Johnson bona fides here. So At I'm least sorry. The- we love Peanut Johnson, <laughs> but we are not naming the afterball after her again. Why is that, Stefan? We don't actually like Peanut Johnson. We love her. She had her afterball name. So why don't we go with, instead, one of the two other women who played in the Negro Leagues, and they were Tony Stone and Connie Morgan. Tony Stone is a cooler name. And she was a uh, second baseman. She played for the Indianapolis Clowns in 1953. She had barnstormed with minor league teams in the late 1940s. And she replaced a fella named Hank Aaron on the Indianapolis Clowns. Not bad. Not bad. Tony Stone. What is your Tony Stone, Stefan? A Boston journalism legend named Clark Booth died on Friday at age 79. In an obituary in the Boston Globe, Booth was praised for his range. He was a sports correspondent for two local stations for 35 years, but he also covered presidential elections, the collapse of the Soviet Empire, the 40th anniversary of D-Day new popes, and he did it on television and in print. He even wrote his own obituary, which the Globe quoted at length. He was the man, Bob Ryan told his old paper, whether it was religion, politics, or sports. Booth was uniformly described as anything but a guy who just showed highlights and read scores at 5 and 11. He was a writer and a storyteller whose work transcended sports, and even his sports work often transcended sports. On Twitter, Joe Nocera mentioned a piece that Booth wrote from Super Bowl X in Miami in 1976, a story that Nocera said influenced him at the time and which he ended up writing about in the New York Times 36 years later. Booth's piece was the cover story in the January 28th, 1976 edition of The Real Paper, an alternative weekly in Boston that would die a few years later. To give you a sense of Booth's place in Boston at age 35, the headline was Clark Booth at the Super Bowl, and then in bigger type, in all caps, death and football. If the objective of the game is to hit with matchless ferocity, Booth wrote, then logically these must be the people who have hit the hardest and have therefore absorbed the hardest hits. So Booth asked the players from the two teams, the Cowboys and the Steelers, to describe the violence and physical and emotional consequences of playing football. Today, after all the scientific research and public exposés about the ravages of the game on the brain and the rest of the body, this seems like an obvious story. But in the 1970s, almost no one asked players about the effects of football. So Booth's story is really a remarkable piece of journalism, as much for the horror stories told in it as for Booth's journalistic curiosity helping to reveal the mind of the player. So when Steelers lineman Mean Joe Green told Booth that he didn't want to think about missing the Super Bowl with the pinched nerve in his neck that he had endured for two months, Booth did what other reporters wouldn't have thought to do. He pushed Green bluntly for a better answer. How could it be possible to ignore the fact that you could be damaging your body for life, Booth asked. Hey, man, what are you trying to do? Hasten my retirement, Green replied. End of conversation, Booth wrote. Other conversations, though, didn't end. Booth had veteran Dallas linebacker Leroy Jordan describe his worst injuries, and he noted that Jordan was playing with pain from his hip to his foot because of nerve damage. Booth noted that Jordan was wealthy from cattle and real estate and asked him, why do you go on knowing that you could ruin the rest of your life by playing a few games too many? Jordan replied, by the time I'm 55, I feel they'll have learned enough to medically treat me, cut the nerves maybe, and relieve the pain. If they can't, I can accept that. Booth talked to more Steelers and Cowboys 
Steelers running back Rocky Blyer, who had fought in Vietnam, told him that surviving injuries in war and football were pretty much the same. He talked to ex-players, to the Patriots team doctor, to a sports psychologist, and to Peter Ghent, the ex-NFL player who had just written the scathing novel North Dallas 40 about the NFL. Booth asked reporters and players to describe the worst NFL injuries they ever saw, and everyone complied in gruesome detail, which Booth printed. You don't have to go skulking around this lavish football festival, so hoopy and frivolous on the surface, to collect such memories, Booth wrote. Once you just slightly tap the source, they come gushing at you like a torrent. Booth discovered what I would rediscover 30 years later when I reported my NFL book, that the players want someone to know what it's really like to play in the NFL. I was amazed at what they were telling me Booth would tell Joe Nocera. Other reporters who overheard Booth's interviews were too. They were fascinated, Booth said, but they had no use for the material. We'll post a link on the show page to a PDF of Death in Football, which I obviously highly recommend everyone reading, and to Joe Nocera's column and to the Boston Globe obituary for Clark Booth. Josh, what's your Tony Stone Last week, HBO released a clip from LeBron James's new series, The Shop, in which LeBron is joined by the likes of Snoop Dogg and Odell Beckham and Jon Stewart to talk about life and the issues of the day and the fact that Snoop is not going to give back the money he got for playing a show for Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi. Breaking news. One of the more interesting tidbits came when Stewart asked James about the pressure James's kids are under, in particular his oldest son, LeBron James Jr. I still regret giving my 14-year-old my name because of that. Right. Like, when I was younger, obviously, we, I ha- didn't have a dad. So my whole thing, I was like, whenever I have a kid, not only is he going to be a junior, I'm going to do everything that this man didn't do. Right. Mm-hmm. They, they, they're going to experience things that I didn't experience. The only thing I can do is give them the blueprint, and it's up to them to take their own course whenever that time happens. LeBron seems like a good dad. He does. LeBron Jr. seems like a good basketball player. Uh, I just did a post on Sunday night about the video of what's being touted as his first dunk. And he also appears to be good at shooting and dribbling and other things that you need to do as a basketball player. But it is going to be hard on the kid and on his younger brother, Bryce, um, just like it's been hard on Michael Jordan's sons. Here is Jordan from his infamous 2009 Hall of Fame speech. Uh, Obviously, you you see my kids, you know, Jeffrey, Marcus, Jasmine. I love you guys. I think uh, you guys represent a lot of me, a lot of different personalities. Your mom, you represent them as well. You know, I, I think that. You guys have a heavy burden. I, I wouldn't want to be you guys if I had to, you know, because of all the expectations that you have to deal with. I mean, look around you. you know, they charge a $1,000 tickets for this game, for this whole event. It used to be 200 bucks. But I paid it. You know, I, I had no choice. I had a lot of family, a lot of friends I had to bring in. So thank you, Hall of Fame, for, for raising ticket price, I guess. Ha, 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 ha. Uncomfortable laughter. Michael Jordan seems like not such a good dad, just based on this very uh, short uh, excerpt from a Hall of Fame speech. Man, what a weird and, and bitter guy. Maybe, maybe a great dad, though. Who knows? Um, but anyway, in 2005, the Washington Post did a story about his son, Jeffrey, the oldest son. Um, he was then a 16-year-old high school prospect. This was at a high school basketball camp. Jeffrey said that the most common question that he got from the other kids was whether he was in Space Jam. He was not. The other question he got was, does he live in a big house? I tell them, well, yeah. And they're like, oh, man, I wish I could be you. Uh, Jeffrey was just six feet tall. A fellow prospect said everybody wants to dunk on him because he's his son. Uh, Jeffrey would play briefly at Illinois. Then he would go to Central Florida to join his brother Marcus. The most notable moment of Marcus's college career came when he refused to wear the team's Adidas shoes because of his dad's long-standing relationship with Nike. The bold social statement he made. <laughs> the second most notable moment came when uh, Marcus bragged about spending tens of thousands of dollars 
at a Vegas casino when he was under the legal age, which does not seem like a very big deal to me, but does prove that he's definitely Michael Jordan's son. Uh, Both Jeffrey and Marcus left Central Florida before their eligibility was up. Marcus, whose Twitter handle is AirMJ, H-E-I-R, now has a sneaker store called Trophy Room. It is an elevated retail boutique expression inspired by the Trophy Room within the Jordan family residence. Whereas Jeffrey, whose Twitter handle is AirJordan13, you can Mm -hmm. guess the spelling probably, was reportedly working for Nike a few years ago. So they're both trading off of their names off their father's legacy, which means they're pretty much the same as the children of a whole lot of rich and famous people. And I think Michael Jordan was right about the burden. I think that LeBron James is right about the burden. Not easy for these kids, but it could probably be worse. There's probably worse fates in the the world than being Michael Jordan's son. I think being LeBron James' son would be better than being being Michael Michael Jordan's son. Yeah, I'd have to agree right now. Neither maybe the worst thing you could possibly be. Time will tell. Time will tell. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Ford and our intern is Meredith Ellison. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty and thanks for listening. That's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.